Thanks, Mark. Good morning and welcome to uh, Christ Community's Leewood Campus. I'm Tom Nelson and uh, we're glad you're here and we hope you have a wonderful Advent season. Did you notice that Christmas often is uh, a mixed bag? Sometimes Christmas can be very polarizing, can it? Have you followed the sort of, well, discussion, maybe a light way to say it, of Starbucks recently removing all Christmas symbols from their coffee cups? Have you followed that? Um, I don't know what you thought of all that, but uh, of course it captured the attention of uh, comedian Stephen Colbert on The Late Show, and uh, he jumped into the fray. I don't know if you saw it, but I want you to see it. Folks, uh, you know, we're just past Halloween, which means we're about to enter the magical season of getting angry that there's not enough talk about Christmas. (laughs) Jim? Starbucks is stirring up controversy over its plain red cups for the holiday season. Some evangelical Christians are very upset that the coffee giant is doing away with symbols of the season, like the snowflakes, the snowmen, and the other kind of ornaments. Yes, they got rid of the Christian religious symbols like snowflakes and snowmen. I mean, I think we all remember the story of when baby Jesus was visited by the three wise Frosties. And I can see why people might be all frothed up about this. Now Starbucks is completely devoid of any trace of the holiday besides the Christmas tree ornaments, advent calendars, CDs of Christmas music, Christmas-themed gift cards, Christmas cookies, and giant displays of their Christmas blend coffee. Well, I love how he allows us, those of us who identify ourselves as evangelical Christians, to take ourselves a little less seriously, which is helpful at times. But don't you love how Stephen Colbert points out something really important? Uh, Brilliantly, he points out the dripping irony that is percolating in the Starbucks Christmas blend we all love, right? (laughs) You know, it says to us something that it may be easy to remove Christmas symbols from Christmas, but it's really hard even for Starbucks to remove Christmas from Christmas. Christmas is not only a time that, well, it draws people together. Christmas is also a time that it pushes people apart. I mean, is it not true that apart from politics, and I'm not going there this morning, so you can relax, is there anything more divisive in our culture with our friends at school or neighbor or our colleague at work than the topic of Christmas? Now, depending on your faith or non-faith perspective here this morning, Christmas can be, as Charles Dickinson said, the best of times or the worst of times. Christmas Day can either be the worst day or the best day. And this idea of Christmas being polarizing is not new to our times. If we begin to look back at the first Christmas, something may surprise us. It was very polarizing in the first century, too. The first century story of the gospel writers, it was the best of times for some, and it was the worst of times for others. So if you brought a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. Now we are in this wonderful book, and uh, following chapter one of the birth narrative of Jesus, now we are in chapter two. And I want you to notice that Matthew, with his brilliant artistry, paints on his inspired literary canvas three differing and polarizing responses to the newborn King Jesus. 
We will see in this narrative some very unlikely worshipers who show up. We will see a king who is simply freaking out. And we will see religious leaders who could care less. This is the literary and narrative structure upon which Matthew hangs chapter 2. And in it we see three responses. Three responses to the newborn king. But embedded in these responses is the transforming truths you and I must not miss. Because embedded in these three responses are truth-laced ironies that are profoundly true to us today. Well, let's enter into the narrative, and first we encounter these unlikely worshipers. Matthew begins chapter 2, uh, arresting our attention with, yes, fun, intrigue, and surprise. It is as if Matthew is saying, hey, maybe not quite that strong, but hey, look who's worshiping Jesus, would you? Matthew describes these gentlemen as, notice the text, wise men from the east, or we may say a more kind of literal Stroy kind of translation is the place of the sun's rising. Now, contrary to many nativity scenes, I'm sorry if this uh, ruins your day, uh, or uh, great songs like the Three Kings of Orient are, we really don't know how many of these wise men came to Jerusalem. Uh, throughout history, they've been given names, but my hunch is there were probably more than three. I'll let you decide that. But what is important for us to grasp is who these unlikely worshipers are and how surprising they are to appear in the early narrative of a very Jewish Matthew to a very Jewish readership. Now keep that in mind. They are often referred to by maybe popular preachers and others as astrologers. But when we think of that word in our English, we often think of people who are often ignorant uneducated and uncultured, who often scam others, like palm readers, for a profit. But let's cast that wrongful caricature aside, because these people were not like that at all. These seekers of the newborn king were some of the brightest minds of the time. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the message, hits it right. He describes them as a band of scholars. Think of them as from Oxford, Harvard of the East. These scholars studied many branches of knowledge. But Matthew's literary interest, notice, focuses more not just on who they are, but what prompted them to make this trek to Jerusalem. He gives us a hint that it is their astronomical observation of this celestial appearance in the sky and their knowledge of both historical texts that they begin to connect the dots of knowledge, the dots of history. And notice the dots that they are seeking is not a religion or a religious experience. The dots of history and the dots of knowledge ultimately point to a person. They come seeking a person. 
These scholars from Babylon or Persia area, brilliant, spend at least, well, I don't know how long it took them, but 700 to 800 miles on the most arduous trek against some of the most brutal desert to get to this small outpost of the Roman Empire called Judea. And if you put yourself in the first century days of Jerusalem, the capital city of Judea, these Eastern scholars entered Jerusalem with their retinue of advisors and people with them, like I would imagine, since we're all into Star Wars today, (laughs) I picture them as just like Star Wars stormtroopers from another galaxy. That's what it was like. Different clothes, what they ate, their language. These people stood out, and Jerusalem was instantly abuzz. And what we learn from Matthew is they have come, you'll notice, to worship the newborn king of the Jews. And with that, the buzz of curiosity turned into a torrent of fear. You can feel the undercurrent in the text. King Herod was ruthless regarding any potential rival, and that was known chillingly to everyone, young and old. King Herod was simply a big frog in a very small pond on the edge of the Roman Empire. But any big frog, no matter what size of pond, wants to what? Stay being the big frog. Herod is on full alert here, and you feel it. Now, when the location is determined by the religious leaders that he summons, that the location of the prophet Micah, who foretold where this king would be born, the Magi immediately scoot south five miles to Bethlehem. Now, can you imagine, after making hundreds of miles trek, what it must have been like to go five miles. It must have seemed like eternity to these band of scholars. But can you imagine how their heart beat and the excitement and expectation rose? Finally, Matthew invites us into this excitement. We are awash in it. He brings us to that home, that house now. Jesus has been born for several months, most likely. He brings us right to the doorstep in the text of the Bethlehem house where Mary Joseph resides. Bethlehem means in Hebrew, the house of bread, Bethlehem. And here it is where the bread of life, the longings of their heart met. It is their thirst and hunger that they encounter in this moment. Verses 10 through 12, look at the text. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Can you imagine the excitement Matthew uses words that capture the giddiness 
an explosion of joy. Long-weighted joy. When their eyes meet the King of Kings. Notice, they fall on their knees. And notice, as a band of scholars, they don't discuss the intellectual formulations that led them there. You see that? They don't congratulate each other and high fives. Oh, we found them. How smart we are. There's nothing of that. What do they do? They hit the deck. They offer him the greatest and most expensive earthly treasures they have lugged through hundreds of miles to bring to him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Can you imagine here at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel writer makes this big exclamation point that he doesn't want us to miss. It is not in Rome or Athens to which all history points, not even Babylon or Persia. It is a small Palestinian hamlet to where all history points where all the peoples of the world find hope and where the deepest longings of the human heart find indescribable joy. Matthew sets the trajectory of his whole book here. Now, Matthew wants us in the narrative to pause and ponder a surprising irony. What is an irony? Remember, writers embed ironies for literary beauty, and for profound meaning. An irony is used by an author to convey something that has a different or even opposite result than we would expect. And the first one is here. What is that irony? The irony Matthew wants us to see is those who are most likely, I'm sorry, those who are the most unlikely are often the most likely. Notice from Matthew's viewpoint and his predominantly Jewish first century readers, can you imagine a band of Gentile intellectuals from the east coming to worship the Jewish king? This is the most unexpected and unlikely person imaginable that would worship Jesus. And here it is right at the beginning of his gospel. They are in this small hamlet, worshiping Jesus at his feet. Notice who's missing. Do you see it? It's not God's covenant people who are worshiping Jesus here, as we would expect, as Matthew's original readers would have expected. Not in your life. Notice how it echoes chapter 1 of the genealogies we looked at if you were here. In chapter 1, The genealogy reminds us of Jesus' birth that Jesus is for all peoples. And here we have in Matthew chapter 2 that Matthew goes out of his way to spotlight God's wooing love and amazing grace for the peoples of the world. With every stroke of his inspired pen, the intellectual framework of the Magi, as you look at the text, the astronomical star and the writings of Micah, the prophet of old, It is here that Matthew reminds us that God will move heaven and earth itself to lead any seeking heart to the Bethlehem doorstep of King Jesus. Every existential question, 
every heart longing, every nuance of history points to a doorstep in Bethlehem. That's what Matthew says. The good news is out. The welcome mat for all the people of the earth is out. For God is a God of all people and his rescue plan embraces all people. We had a great privilege, as Andrew was alluding to earlier, to have Sarah, a remarkable Iranian pastor and church planter, speak to us just a few Sundays ago. Sarah shared much of her story in different times when she was here, but she, like many Iranian Muslims, who are coming to Christ in unprecedented numbers, tell of dramatic encounters with Jesus revealing himself in dreams and other supernatural phenomena. Wherever they are, and Asaro is in a solitary confinement in one of the most horrendous prisons, Evian Prison in Tehran. And we are reminded that often it is the most who we deem unlikely that are the most likely to fall at Jesus' feet and worship him. On a trip to Africa to work with one of our global partners, two of our pastors, Bill Gorman and Jeanette Thomas, met Hussein. Hussein's story is really amazing. Let me just give you a little snapshot of it. He grew up in a very Muslim area of Kenya, no churches, no Christians. He'd never seen a Bible, never heard of Jesus. Yet as Hussein tells it, one day he fell asleep under a tree (laughs) and he had a dream in which Jesus came to him with his nail-scarred hands and feet and revealed himself to Hussein. Hussein puts his faith in Jesus who revealed himself in a dream. He is guided by the Holy Spirit to a church and he starts reading about Jesus in the Bible and Hussein begins to tell others about Jesus but he is disowned by his Muslim family. He is severely beaten and left for dead. And yet at the door of death, God heals him completely, instantly. And he continues to be a faithful follower of Jesus today. Here's a picture of Pastor Jeanette Hussein. See, whether it is a first century or the 21st century, we are confronted with the irony that those who we often deem most unlikely to embrace Jesus are often the most likely. See, whether that person lives in a faraway country or sits next to you in class at school or in the car ahead of you in the pickup line or in the cubicle next to you at work, Jesus came for all peoples of the world. Think with me for just a moment, would you? Who is the person at school, the person at work, the person in your neighborhood who you think, they're not interested in Christ. They would never follow Christ. Just perhaps, they are the very people who Jesus is wooing to himself and who long his saving, gentle arms, and who want to fall at his feet.
Will you during this Advent season pray for them? And will you tell them about Jesus? Do you notice in the text, if you are an astute observer of it, that Matthew not only gives us an irony, he embeds another irony in the irony? Do you see it? The question for the reader is, okay, who is really seeking who here? See, it is ultimately in Matthew's writing, not the magi who are seeking the king of kings. Uh Uh-uh. It is the sovereign God of the guiding star who has been seeking the magi all along. The kind, gracious, yet relentless hound of heaven is the one who seeks you and me. The most unlikely sinners lost, broken, and hopeless and in desperate need of rescue. Do you see how Matthew wants to cement in our hearts and minds that the loving triune God will absolutely move heaven and earth to make himself known to one seeker? J.R. Token is so brilliant in so many ways in his writing, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He pointed out this, and he's known perhaps best for this phrase in literature. Token said, not all who wonder are lost. While there is rich truth in that statement, whether we see ourselves this morning as simply wandering or as truly lost, all of us need rescue. For Jesus is the King, the Savior of all peoples of the earth. Now notice as you are in this text and feel it and hear it, Matthew showcases first, by design, the heart warming response of the Magi to King Jesus. Then right on the heels of that, he points out the horrific response of King Herod. Notice verse three, Matthew says, hey, look who's freaking out about Jesus. This is tough guy Herod. Now, we know a lot about Herod the Great. This is what he was called, or other Herod's from both extra-biblical sources, and Matthew is in line with this as a wonderful historian. See, it's not that Herod the Great was known throughout history because of his great character. (laughs) It was his great buildings that still, in many cases, you still can see today, or parts of them. Herod the Great was truly an extraordinary builder in antiquity. Several years ago, Liz and I had the privilege, as maybe some of you know, to study uh, a graduate course in Israel. And as you get to know history and archaeology and the language of Palestine, everywhere in this small little country, the fingerprints of King Herod over 2,000 years ago are still evident. Aqueducts. But what's most important is the temple he built. It's a grand temple. People came from all over the world to see it. They came in from the east, as these magi did, and it glows with the cinnamonian limestone that's just brilliantly yellow and gold. It was like the most beautiful place on earth, especially in the morning sun, which the magi must have seen. It's interesting, this temple was so grand, it took 30-some years after Herod's death to build it completely. And isn't it interesting, we're going to see this down the road in Matthew, you don't miss in Matthew 24, Matthew highlights the disciples coming from small town Galilee, coming to big time Jerusalem and seeing the temple and they go to Jesus. Wow! 
Unbelievable, Jesus. Do you see this? Herod the Great was an amazing builder. He was a sadistic, maniacal, psychopathic, brutal leader. We know a lot about it. I won't tell you all about it. You can read it in history. It will not make you hungry for your lunch. Let me just give you a little window into this guy. Because what Matthew says about his cunning and manipulation in the narrative is consistent with who he is. Herod was not a Jew. He was appointed by the Roman Senate in 40 B.C. And he gained control ruthlessly of Palestine in 37 B.C. I'll give you just a picture. He tortured people and loved it. He killed anyone who stood in his way or even he paranoid, in a paranoid way thought in any way could stand in his way. Herod murdered his wife, his three sons, his mother-in-law. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. No, just kidding. <laughs> a little humor there. Very little. Brother-in-law. Uncle, think of that, many others. Not to mention the babies in Bethlehem, which Matthew tells us in chapter 2 here. Herod died a horrible, wasting death, and all of Palestine in 4 BC had a big sigh of relief. Matthew wants us to see that Herod is true to form. One of the wonderful writers that you might want to read, um, brilliant writer in the 20th century, is an American theologian named Frederick Beekner. He describes this brilliantly. He says, for all his enormous power, he, Herod, knew there was somebody in diapers more powerful still. That's exactly it. Do you notice in verses 13 through 15, Matthew notes that Herod seeks to, Herod seeks to destroy the child in diapers, but God intervenes to protect the newborn king with an escape plan. Do you see it? It's all over here. Herod and his henchmen are on the trail. An angel appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him to head to Egypt. What amazing trust the Holy Family had, young Joseph and Mary. But you have to see, it's not about Joseph and Mary. All the way through, Matthew wants us to know it is a sovereign God who's weaving a brilliant thread of his sovereignty. He's the ultimate one in charge. The expensive gifts, for example, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh brought hundreds of miles are now used by the Holy Family to survive in Egypt. Wow. In our current cultural climate, this context is important because there's so many, as we've said, refugees around the world who are fleeing oppressive regimes. And we're reminded in this text that Jesus and his family were refugees. As a young family, they faced all the uncertainties, the hardships, the suspicion, the language challenges, the vulnerabilities that every refugee faces. When the Holy Scriptures call us as followers of Jesus to welcome and care for the stranger among us, the refugee. We face a massive refugee crisis in our time. And yes, the refugee issue is complex with many competing stewardships. But as a local church family, we need prayerful wisdom, don't we? In how we are to respond. We're going to be hosting an evening event, and I encourage you to put on your calendar, February 18th at our downtown campus. And the purpose is for us to take a closer look at the scriptures and in a non-partisan way, learn more about the current situation and what God may be leading us to do. Let's not miss the importance of the refugee. 
And here in this heart-racing and heart-wrenching narrative, King Herod's hate-filled, evil opposition to the newborn king jumps out at us. And it is here that the second irony is embedded. Do you see it? The second irony that Matthew wants us to grasp is those who think they're in charge are not in charge. Christmas is a reminder to the powerful of their absolute powerlessness. Think about this. As powerful as King Herod thinks he is, we see here he is very puny. It's almost in every verse, Matthew's saying, so who's the king? So who's the king? Herod commits unimaginable atrocity, and Matthew doesn't gloss over it. But he has the long view redemption. Herod is just a blimp on the screen, a puff of wind in human history. He is nothing before a holy God. Matthew 19, isn't it beautiful, if I can say that, and brilliant of, G, of Matthew. In verse 19, he just simply says, yep, Hebrew di- or Herod dies. Yep, Herod dies. But he wants to see that Jesus is very much alive. And like the grand conductor of an orchestra, God is orchestrating history to its climactic crescendo. There's no question. Notice all the way through this chapter, everything is following the prophetic script written down by the Hebrew prophets before. Matthew points out Hosea and its connection, his connection to the flight to Egypt. Jeremiah and the weeping moms of Bethlehem. And clearly when we read this, it makes us shudder, doesn't it? The slaughter of boys in Bethlehem by King Herod is so disturbing to us, and it should be. And it's very hard for us to harmonize this with a loving, sovereign God, isn't it? There are no simple or fully satisfactory human answers for this. The Bible simply tells us that God's ways are not our ways, nor is God's timing our timing. And the only thing we can hold on to in our finitude is God's patience and long view in defeating evil and one day ushering in the new heavens and new earth. That's what we have to hold on to. Notice in what seems to be utter chaos, everything is going going according to plan. Do you see it? The word fulfill will occur three times as a structural flow. What Matthew's doing is he's taking Old Testament prophecies, not in a precise way, but a general way, and he's connecting all the dots and say they all point to Jesus the Messiah. Do we grasp the dripping irony here? Those who think they're in charge are not in charge. King Herod thinks he's in charge, but there's another king, the king of kings, who's really in charge here. And Matthew wants us to pause and answer this question. So reader, listener, who really is in charge of your life? Matthew's saying, you may think you are, but you're not. And as we look at the world, it seems to be chaotic and out of control. Who's in charge of the nations, ultimately? Who's in charge of history? Ultimately, it's God, a sovereign God. Now, while the Magi's response to Jesus is one of worship, notice King Herod's response is one of opposition. But we must not miss there is another response here. And that is the Jewish leaders who have a response of incredible apathy. Matthew's saying, look who cares less about Jesus. And the troubled silence of the chief priests and scribes is simply deafening in chapter 2. 
deafening. And think about the irony here. While the Magi risked their life traveling hundreds of miles across barren desert to worship King Jesus, these Jewish religious leaders of the time are unwilling to even take a few hours out of one day to travel five miles to see Jesus. Do you see the, the irony? Embedded in the Jewish religious aristocracy, and it is this, the third irony of this text. Those who should see often do not see. Anyone should have seen and been excited and anticipated the coming of Messiah Jesus. It should have been the Jewish leaders, the religious people. They were immersed in Jewish history. They had sacred text, culture. Yet the irony is that they were blind to what was right in front of them. I find their response perhaps the most challenging to me this morning. How about you? One of the greatest tragedies of Christmas is it's often missed by those who shouldn't miss it. And Matthew offers this sober warning for those of us who know the Bible some or know the Bible or are part of a faith community that we can be blind to what is right in front of us. And the irony is that those who think they know the most can actually know the least. That minds can get fuller and fuller with thoughts about God, yet hearts can move further and further away from God. So do you have eyes that see? Is your heart drifting further and further away or drawing closer and closer to King Jesus? See, Matthew presents to us three responses to Jesus. Right? The wise worshiped him powerful opposed him, and the religious ignored him. What will be your response this Christmas? Will you oppose Jesus? You say, not me. I mean, King Herod, <laughs> he had this big kingdom. But the inconvenient truth is that there's a lot more King Herod in your life and mine than we care to admit. We may not rule a country or a business or be a big shot we all have a personal kingdom that we're in charge of. At least we think. It's what we have control over. We not, may not oppose Jesus in a fragrant way, but we sort of oppose Jesus for having a say over what we want to have a say in our life. How we spend our time, our money, who we are in relationship with, our closest friends, our marriage, our hobbies, our entertainments, our sexual involvements, the career or dreams we are pursuing. See, how do you know if you're opposing Jesus this morning? Let me help you out. This is how you know. Evaluate what's off limits to God in your life. Most of us have said the Lord's Prayer, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What are we saying to God when we utter the Lord's Prayer? We are saying to God, there's nothing off limits in my life to you. So maybe one of the most important applications this morning is for you to say the Lord's Prayer quietly and slowly and mean it. The second response is ignoring Jesus. It's easy, isn't it, like the religious leaders to go through the motions on Sunday morning but live the rest of the week in a hurried, harried, distracted, and self-absorbed life, isn't it? Many of us are so constantly plugged into the 24-7 smartphone and computers, 
living our preoccupied, prayerless days as if Jesus is of no consequence to us at all. We simply are not attentive to the one we need to be attentive to most. This morning, you may not only be ignoring him and being attentive to Jesus, you may intentionally be ignoring him and pushing him back. You may be shrugging your shoulders in a sort of whatever response to Jesus. Maybe your heart is suffocating in a dark cloud of agonizing disappointment. Maybe you feel like Jesus has really let you down in your life. Maybe bitterness is putting a barrier between you and Jesus. Maybe you are reeling from a painful loss. And like a difficult relative that has stayed too long, frankly, you just don't want Jesus around anymore. Maybe you are discarding Jesus like you would discard the gift wrappings on Christmas morning. Yet deep in your heart, you know Jesus is the ultimate gift. The only one that can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart and mind. So will you slow down long enough this Christmas to reflect on your life? Don't ignore him. Draw near to him. He will draw near to you. The last response is one of worship. It's the biggest surprise imaginable in all the Gospel of Matthew. I'm convinced in chapter two there's a band of scholars (laughs) who travel hundreds of miles to see Jesus in this small town to which all of life, all of history, all of the human heart points right here. And they fall at Jesus' pure feet. How about you? How about you this morning? Jesus took all your sin on the cross. He rose from the dead. He conquered fear and death. And he offers each one of us the gracious gift of forgiveness of sin and new life. So will you embrace him as Lord and Savior? Will you offer him your whole heart? All that frankincense, gold, and myrrh that you treasure. Will you present to him your priorities and your plans, your relationships, your treasures? See, Christmas can be a day that's the best of times and worst of times. What will it be for you today? It all depends on your response to the King of Kings. Will you oppose him? Will you ignore him? Or will you worship him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the King of Kings and Lord of Lords the greatest lover of our souls. It is your kindness that leads us to repentance. So Lord, wherever we are this morning, may you be the king that you are in our lives and our world. May we adore you and worship you and not ignore you or oppose you.